Hello and welcome to Search for Truth. It's great to have you with us. and Thanks for tuning in to this programme, Search for Truth, which is your Bible teaching programme with Brian Johnston. Today, Brian brings us talk number three in this series of ten programmes, and they're all about the model for Christian church life found laid out for us in the New Testament. In other words, we're seeking to discover what God intended when New Testament Christian disciples began collective service for God. These things were written for our learning, says the Apostle Paul, so let's now learn with Brian as he looks into the Bible book of the Acts to see how the first local church came into being. So, thank you, Brian. As you say, John, so far in this series, we've been looking at God's desire for Christians to be together, and we've also explored what the Bible meaning of the word church is. This meaning connects directly with that desire of God in that the idea of people being gathered is, in fact, the essential meaning of the word church. The first local church of God, to which we're introduced in the New Testament, has its origin in the second chapter of the Bible book of Acts. Verses towards the end of that chapter, 41-42, describe the result of the first gospel message. It was preached by the Apostle Peter to Jews who'd travelled to Jerusalem for the Jewish Old Testament celebration of Pentecost. This was ten days after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it's recorded for us in chapter 1 of Acts. This particular day of Pentecost was to be the start of a new era, the era of the New Testament, with the recorded beginnings of both the church, the body of Christ, and its first expression in a local church of God which was to be in Jerusalem, the cradle of Christianity. We've previously seen the definitions and the distinction between these churches, and so now we want to move forward to explore more fully the origin of that first local church of God at Jerusalem. Let's look closely at those verses we've mentioned, Acts 2, 41 and 42. So then, those who had received his word were baptised, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. There are seven particular actions contained in those two verses. Some of them describe things which happened once, but other actions mentioned in that biblical list relate to activities which were ongoing. The list is conveniently split into the two verses, 41 and 42. Verse 41 lists those actions which happened once. So then, those who had received his word were baptised, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. It should be said that these were also things which were done individually by each of the believers, either done by them or something which was done to them. But in any case, each of these first three actions was personal. By contrast, when we come to verse 42 and read they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, the language makes it very clear that we're dealing here with repeated actions in each case. And what's more, actions which were carried out with others, having moved from the personal realm into the corporate. The words continually and they serve to make that obvious. But now, let's take a look at each of these seven actions, one by one, beginning with salvation, that is, the forgiveness of sins, which is the meaning of the wording, received his word, which is found in verse 41. The Apostle Peter had preached the word or the message, as we have it summarised in the earlier verses of Acts chapter 2. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth had been preached, and the call given for a believing response one evidenced by true repentance. 
To receive the word or the message meant to receive the one who was preached in that message. And that, of course, was Christ. Peter, like Paul later, preached Christ and him crucified. So this receiving of the word of Christ here agrees also with what John said in the opening of his gospel in chapter 1 verse 12 when he spoke about receiving Christ, that is, by believing on his name, with the certain result of becoming a child of God through faith alone. When anyone responds like this, he or she is born again, forgiven of all sins, and becomes the possessor of eternal life, all in that same moment, and sealed and assured through the Holy Spirit who's given to live in them from that time forward. Now, the second action, listed in Acts 2.41, is baptism. As a general rule, when the New Testament mentions baptism, if it doesn't qualify the word, then it's water baptism which is intended. So here we have it that after they received the word, they were baptised. The meaning of the word baptised is simply dipped. After professing Christ as their personal saviour, these people were dipped in water. Why? What's the significance of this? Well, Romans chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5 explain that this is a symbolic act on the part of the Christian believer. The act of going in and then under and finally coming back up out of the water dramatically represents death, burial and resurrection. The believer is, in this way, identifying himself or herself with Jesus in his death. It's an act which recognises that his death was in reality our death. And so we are testifying publicly to others that we are now to be viewed as new people with new life in the one who rose victoriously from the dead. This baptism, which we read about in the New Testament, for example, in that Romans chapter 6 verse, which speaks about burial in water, was baptism performed by immersion. Believers' baptism is a public act by which we identify ourselves with what took place at the cross where Jesus died. As a practical result, we aim to live now in a new way as a follower of Jesus. The old ways of the old life are to be left behind. Clearly, this is only meaningful for someone who's already received salvation prior to water baptism, which was definitely the order of events set out in Acts 2 and verse 41. You see, it takes a new person to commit to living a new life under new management, living no longer for ourselves but for the Lord. It was Jesus who told his apostles to go into the world and make disciples whom they were to baptise. It became part of the apostles' teaching, a requirement of biblical Christianity. And so down to this day, this is a command we keep because we love the Lord who gave the command, and we do this to go public with the demonstration of our love for our Saviour. Jesus' original command at the end of Matthew chapter 28 described baptism as being done in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Notice it's the singular name of the triune God. Sometimes the New Testament records believers being baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. But of course it would be perverse to take this as some kind of self-contradictory denial of the reality of the Trinity. On the contrary, it reinforces the point that Matthew reports Jesus himself originally making in terms of talking of the singular name which represents all three persons of the Godhead. But we now need to ask, what happened to the newly baptised believers at Pentecost? Next in the list of Acts 2.41 is the act of being added, 
which makes a baptised disciple a part of the church of God in a particular city, and so part of the fellowship of God's Son in overall terms. Although it's much less talked about compared to salvation and baptism, we're surely not entitled to dispense with the fact that those who were baptised were added. In its original context, we see this as always to do with baptised believers being joined to an existing group of local disciples. Back in the 19th century, Christian believers debated the significance of added and the connected issue of who should be admitted to participate at the Lord's table. At that point in history, the thrilling biblical teaching about the church which is Christ's body had been freshly rediscovered. This brought with it a very natural desire to express the unity of the body in the simple ordinance of the breaking of the bread, shorn of all ritual and transcending previous denominational barriers. As the movement spawned by this discovery matured, people began to differentiate between the unity of the body and its various local expressions. As more consideration came to be given to these local expressions of Christ's body, a sense of responsibility began to develop surrounding those who were considered eligible to be communicants at the Lord's table in these local settings. Debate took place between those who, by emphasising the unity of the body, championed full fellowship by all professing common life in Christ. And on the other hand, those who by emphasising responsible local expressions of the body insisted upon a more restricted or reserved circle of fellowship, which considered a potential communicant's beliefs and behaviours. Achieving consistency in these matters was proving difficult. A decisive turning point in the debate arrived when it was seen just what people were added to in the New Testament. Were sinners added to the body of Christ? Or were believers added to its local expression. From verses such as Acts 2 and verses in also Acts chapter 5, those who came to form the churches of God understood it to be the latter. Those who were added were already believers, members of the body being added to its local expressions. What's more, the Bible impressively teaches us that it's the Lord who adds believers to himself by adding them to those disciples of his who are already called out and gathered together in the locality in question, in whichever town or city that may be. Local church elders, appointed in each locality where there is a church of God, have the responsibility to discern when this is happening and to publicly recognise it on behalf of the church. Practically, this will happen when they process a new applicant's desire to join the local church fellowship. Having satisfied themselves that the applicant is a baptised believer, they then recommend that the church receive such a person, who is then welcomed as a participant if there are no valid reasons offered by any as to why this shouldn't happen. But I hear you say, you're reading more into these verses than is actually there. It's simply a way of saying that the Christian community was growing. OK, fair enough. Let's check that out. A helpful indication of the significance of any original biblical term comes from seeing how it was used in the surrounding Greek and Roman world of that time. Now, when the New Testament says believers were added, the sense was something like they went over from one party to another. The Greek writers made use of this verb to describe the act by which towns, cities or provinces changed their masters and put themselves under another government. 
So, for example, the 3,000 persons mentioned in Acts 2.41 left the side or party of the scribes and Pharisees and put themselves under the teaching of the apostles and so under the lordship of Christ. They now unitedly professed the Christian doctrine, the faith, having turned away from previously held erroneous teaching, perhaps that typical of the scribes and Pharisees. So this term had a clear theological significance. Its use showed a definite, deliberate realigning under Christ's lordship. Growth, yes, but of a specific type. I remind you that with this series of talks, there's a transcript booklet containing all of the talks and it's free. So if you'd like one or more, please tell us. Now I'm about to give you contact details, so get your pen and paper to hand because here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, PO Box 70115, Chilomani, Blantyre, Malawi. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. I'd like to remind you too that there are alternative ways of re-listening and accessing previous series books. One way is by looking at www.searchfortruth.org.uk. That's our church's main website where you can download some actual programmes and their accompanying transcripts. Also look out for Search for Truth featuring on www.twr360.org. This will give you yet another excellent way of accessing again what you first heard here on air. So many thanks for the privilege of your company today. We do appreciate your interest. And next week, Brian looks again into the origins of the first local New Testament church to learn more. So I hope you can join us. But until then, very best wishes from Brian, David, me, John, and goodbye. May God richly bless you. Bye.